Welcome to Season 5 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise in facilitating leadership education, training, and development. Interested in keeping up with the latest conversations across the leadership discipline? Want to add more to your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design without changing your routine? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University, and we are both thrilled about today's episode of our podcast. This season, we're looking at leadership from a global perspective. We've talked about leadership both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. over the past five seasons. This time, we're specifically featuring leadership educators from Africa, Asia, Europe, and Australia. Today, we are joined by Dr. Vincent Ogutu, the Vice Chancellor Designate at Strathmore University in Nairobi, Kenya. Welcome to the show, Vincent. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Dan. Great to be with you folks. And we're so excited to, to have you on the show today and uh, excited to hear about your, your path as a, as a leadership educator and, and what brought you uh, back to Nairobi. And we're definitely going to dive into your role as an educator and business faculty and as an economics professor and what have you. But, but first, would you share a little bit about your path with our audience of how did you make that transition from business faculty to your role as vice chancellor designate? Um, and then we'll get back into some of your experiences um, on the educator side of things. Well, Dan, if I said I planned it, I'd be lying. I did not. <laughs> it was actually the exact opposite of what I planned to do when I came back from Rutgers, where I did my PhD in the States and came back to Nairobi. I had promised my professors that I would not take any admin roles because it would be the death of my research. And then the first thing that happened when I landed, they said, we need you as the vice dean of the business school. And I said, that's crazy. No, that's not what I'm planning to do. But they said the vice dean needed to get her PhD done. She'd been waiting for me. And so they kind of guilted me into helping her finish her PhD by taking up the position. And I told her, you can have it right back when you finish. But of course, that never happened. So I got bumped up to the management board of the university. After that, they said they needed help and they, they got me there. And then finally, when they were looking for the next president of the university, the next vice chancellor, they asked those of us in the management board to give our views of who they should be looking for, what kind of a person, what did Strathmore University need uh, going into the future. And so I said what I said, and later on they said, we actually think you should go for it. So uh, I ended up being the vice chancellor. So it's not something that I planned, but uh, you can call it fate, call it whatever you want, but I saw an opportunity to have an impact in a way I hadn't planned. I always wanted to have an impact. I had a different plan, but this plan is actually better than the one I had. The opportunities are just endless from this position to help so many people and to transform society in so many ways. Yeah, and the and the vice chancellor designate that that would be similar to like a, a president of a university role in the US, right? Yes, so it would be, to be even more precise, like the president-elect, it's almost like you're going okay. to be the next one. So in my case, I've actually started the role, but I've not been officially inaugurated. You know, academic, academia, they stand <laughs> on ceremony. So until they do that, I keep wearing the name 
uh, vice chancellor designate. And once we have that ceremony, then the name will just change to vice chancellor. Got it. But I effectively started in May. There seem to be a lot of those, oh, academia moments in your career, like, no, go right. get your PhD. You'll come back and teach. You get back, ah, but we need you to do this other thing. Yeah. And no, yeah. faculty, don't take on admin roles. Like, we need you to teach. Oh, but we need you to do this other thing. It feels like that serendipity theme, you know, can can be found in across our careers as, as faculty and as administrators. And I think for the reason you said, you want to help people out and you know that with administration comes power, influence, and you're able to affect change that you may not be able to affect from the, the faculty side as much. And you're right, Lauren. You see, one issue that they brought up was you want to be in this perfect university that gives people like you the time and the freedom to do all these amazing things you want to do in society. But who do you want to create that sort of an environment? Who do you think should do it? You can't just pass it away and say, no, let someone else do it. Someone's got to do it who understands the other professors. And so that's what they were inviting me to do. Could you be the one that creates the environment that allows people like you to flourish? And I said, yes. And it's not that bad. You know, sometimes these sacrifices are only at the moment when you're giving up your plan, your previous plan. But if you have this mindset of, I could not live a boring day in my life, then the minute you say yes, you actually decide to make this one the plan. So how can we make this the most interesting job, the most impactful job? And thankfully, it is very possible to do that. And uh, I'm not, you know, regretting this decision at all. I'm enjoying it. I'm interacting with the students. I'm interacting with people in industry, with my fellow academics in so many different meaningful ways. So I think it's great. You know, once you say yes, just go all in. I, you know, I love how you talked about the relationships you're able to build between, you know, students and faculty and administrators, as well as the perspective you bring as a former faculty member. Um, can you tell us kind of like what led you to get into leadership education? Where I grew up, Lauren, was the poorer part of Nairobi. It's known as Eastlands. So in Kenya, if you say Eastlands, everyone knows what you're talking about. You know, it's like the hood, you know, so that's where I grew up. And I saw a lot of poverty around me, and I wanted to do something about it. There's this particular day when I was probably 10, 11 years old, where some bulldozers were sent and they flattened an entire neighborhood because they wanted to gentrify it. And I saw all these uh, women and children screaming and crying. and It had a big impact in my life. I just thought, I don't want to see this kind of misery ever again. And naively, I thought the way around it was to get into a profession that would go straight at the poverty question, that would help eliminate poverty. So I became an economist. That's what I had in mind, to somehow eliminate poverty. But after a while, it dawned on me that it's not the economists who call the shots. It's the leaders. It's the political leaders. It's the corporate leaders who actually make decisions. Economists can only advise them. And so I figured if I wanted to actually have an impact, I would need to either get into leadership myself or get into a position where I can influence leadership. And that's when my former high school teachers, I went to a very good uh, high school, and they said, you're an idealist, come and join us. We're actually going to train the next generation of leaders for Africa. We're getting very talented kids coming to this school and you'll get a shot at inspiring them 
to do the right thing by our country, to become very good professionals, very ethical professionals, and they'll make a difference. So you'll be playing from the background. You're not in the front lines, but it's almost like you're cloning yourself because you get this chance to inspire several people every year who'll do exactly what you would have done. The only difference is there are several people. There's just one of you, but you're cloning yourself. So your impact over time is going to be huge. So I did that as a high school teacher. I moved on to the university, started running the MBA program at Strathmore University. And one thing led to another. And here I am again in a leadership position at the university. But it's all the same game, forming, training leaders. As a high school teacher, I was doing it for future leaders. In the university, it's amazing. You're doing it for current leaders, especially with MBA, executive education. These people are already managers, CEOs. So whatever you tell them today, they apply tomorrow. So you have an instant impact. It's just amazing. Yeah, no, there's there's something to be said so much about teaching students at, at that level. Uh, you know, I I still have a soft spot uh, because I guess some of the first classes I ever taught were for you know were for undergraduates at University of South Florida. I wasn't that far removed from being an undergraduate myself. I think I was 27 or 28 years old when I taught my first intro to leadership class there as a as a doctoral student. But when I got the opportunity to teach here at University of Southern Maine, one of the things that was so attractive about it was I could teach that group of students on a Tuesday, but on a Thursday I'm I'm teaching a graduate seminar. Now we have a PhD program to boot, and so I've I'm across all three levels. And, you know, it, it's finding those relevant experiences for students to bring into the classroom, to have conversations about, to, to relate to, to, to invigorate with that experiential learning loop of, you know, if, if somebody says, well, I've, I've never had a job or I've never been a leader or a follower, you know, and, and it's, it's a little tough sometimes when they're freshmen or first time in college or what have you. But with graduate students, I can probably count on one hand, even with the economy being the way it, it has been, which is a roller coaster over the last nine years, more often than not, students were employed or very, very recently employed. And they could, like you said, they can apply it tomorrow in their job. They can, they can jump right into it and, and love and, and just the diversity of the types of experiences and roles and organizations that they're in is it's one of the, the most fascinating things about being a leadership educator and having the opportunity to facilitate the learning and the dialogue among those learners. So I'd be curious thinking about that. In your experience teaching these MBA courses, specifically in Kenya, what are some of the topics or trends that you see emerging from your students? So I do teach, uh, you know, managing people and performance and anything psychological happening in the workplace. And there are new trends in Africa as well, which we're noticing. Uh, for instance, psychological issues are now important. So in the past, you know, Whatever the boss said went. However the boss said it didn't matter. But people are now kind of standing up for their rights and saying, you don't have any right to speak to me like that. So they have all kinds of expectations which were not there in the past. So previously it was more like, you know, get the work done, deliver, you're paid. The rest is just nonsense, you know, like fluff. We're not even interested. But now people actually care about the way they're treated. They care about the way they feel when they get to the office, self-esteem issues. These are things we didn't need to deal with in the past. It was just, can you deliver? So that's, that's a new trend. And then people are taking ownership of their own growth. So they're not just happy to join a pipeline where 
someone else is guiding their future. You know, after two years, you'll be promoted to such and such a position, you know, supervisor, and then you'll become a manager, and then a senior manager, et cetera, et cetera. So you just have to wait in line until you get to where we will take you to. So another trend now is people are taking their future into their hands actively. And they'll even engage their employers and say, how will you help me? What are the opportunities here? How long would it take? And they're also switching jobs much more often. In the past, you'd join an organization and that's your career for life. But then now people will say, okay, I'm done with this particular organization because I've learned what I needed to learn. They're not going to help me grow any further. And so I need to switch to another, maybe a bigger organization, maybe a different kind of organization to develop a different side of me. So there are all these trends that we didn't see before. It was all kind of like a cookie factory uh, arrangement where you just jump into the process and 30 years later, we know what you're going to be like. It's so different now because people are forging their own futures. Definitely. I remember, uh, and we recently had a professor from uh, Waseda University uh, in Tokyo area, uh, Dr. Miki Higano. And I remember a conversation we had had, he had mentioned that, you know, this, a lot of his students, when he first got started, and he's starting to see that change in Japan as well as, you know, it was always, where do you work or where is your son or daughter going to work after they graduate with their business degree? And he said, well, it needs to be, you know, Sony or, you know, or, or, or Toyota or, you know, it was some of these major, major big businesses. And that was the way the economy was in the U.S. Um, after, you know, the baby boomers was, where can I go and get a pension and work for 30 years? General Electric, Ford and 3M, whatever it is. And you expect to be, you know, in maybe one or two organizations total in your entire career. And particularly, right. you know, right, right. With, you know, your millennials, your Gen Zs, you're starting to see, well, no, my values don't align with the mission of this organization, or I don't like the work-life balance that I'm getting here or, or what have you. And, and individuals are, are so more likely to to make those changes in short order. You're right, Dan. That's yet another trend that I've noticed where people are interested in values. So it's not just what kind of work do we do in this organization? And maybe I am trained for it. I'm a professional in that field. It's more a question of, are we aligned with the global sustainability goals? You know, uh, Can I actually have an impact? Are we leaving a good or bad footprint on the planet? So people actually care about that and they'll make decisions based on that and they might actually sign up or not. So that's yet another trend that we didn't see before. So they actually put the organization to the test. So every interview is now a two-way interview. It's not just you checking me out, am I good enough for you? But I'm also checking you out, are you good enough for me? Would I want to work here? So totally new trend, and I think it's great. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure it, it's invasive, but I guess it invites itself, that phenomenon, into the leadership education classroom. I'm curious, and it, it, may not, it doesn't have to be on this particular topic, but is there a, a particular learning activity or learning experience that you really love to facilitate? You can't wait for that particular class meeting that speaks to maybe some of these emerging trends or some of these, these topics that, that you can, you know, that you draw from as one of those best teaching days that you've had in some of your MBA classes? I guess some of the things I look at are uh, deep existential questions because yeah. my area is a psychology of meaningful work. 
and when you're trying to find meaning, you can go as deep as you want, you know. And so I like asking the question why. It's my favorite question. So whenever someone says, I would do this, I then ask them why. Why would you do that? And I look for all sorts of excuses to use the question why, especially if it's a case study and they have to make a decision and it's bordering on something ethical. They have to make a decision that will have ethical implications and they're going one way because maybe they'll make profits. And I know that's why they're doing it, but I'll ask them why. And then I'll even ask them, and what about the people? What about the impact on your employees? Have you thought about that? And then they'll try and wiggle around, but I'll just, you know, sink my teeth in and ask them, yeah, what about the employees? So why don't you care about what happens to them? And if it's something that they're making as a personal decision, again, I'll just ask them why. You know, I'll keep pressing on until I get them to ask themselves deep existential questions or even fundamental questions like what values guide them. And so anything to do with culture and values, that's when I'm on fire. So whenever we're talking about organizational culture, I like to define it as uh, something that is undergirded by values. So when you talk of a particular organization having a particular culture, how did they get there? It's because the building blocks are a particular set of values. It's almost like um, the ingredients. And if you have certain ingredients, they'll produce a certain flavor. So all values, most values are good, but a particular combination produces a particular flavor, which is what we call a culture. So then I ask them, okay, you've got to pick those particular values really well because they are deep beliefs that guide the way you think, feel, and act. So since there are these deep principles of action, which ones are you going to pick and why? And you have to think about it from an organizational perspective and also from a personal perspective. What kind of a person do you want to be? And that's obviously going to be driven by values. Now, which values are you going to pick that will produce the kind of person you want to be? That's unique, it's you, it's not anyone else. And so you need to find your combination of values that produces your best possible self. So anytime I get a chance to trigger that discussion, definitely I'll go there. Because I think it's not just about teaching content, it's about getting people to become better people, which means you have to influence at least their thoughts around values so that they're more conscious about why they are, who they are, where they're going. They can't just let some organization decide that for them or let it happen randomly. When you take ownership, that's like the highest level you can operate at when you choose your values and live up to them. Oh, amazing. I mean, that, that's like the, the ultimate, the essence of what we're trying to do, right? It, it's almost like we're, we're trying to get them to be curious in addition to like knowing this content is important and wonderful. And we want you to really be curious. And in those moments, asking them why those are the same questions they're going to have to ask themselves when they're in professional spaces or even personal spaces where they have to, you know, make decisions that are going to have an impact on others. Yeah, that's right, Lauren. In fact, when you ask yourself what the whole aim of teaching is, I think it's to impart something permanent. It can't be to just give this temporary knowledge that they can find anyway. They just go to their mobile phone, check Wikipedia. 
it's at their fingertips. So why would we waste so much time talking about content as if it's everything? It's actually yeah. the least part of it. And they're going to forget it after the exam, guaranteed. A month later, they fail the same exam. So why do we do it? Because there's a chance that as we go through that material, we might actually embed something permanent in them. Something like, say, critical thinking, diligence, organizational skills, communication skills, honesty, you name it. It could be skills, it could be values. Now those stay with you. They're sort of like devoid of the content. They're going to transcend the content. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of teaching as passing on skills, you know, competencies, and also passing on values, that becomes the aim. And so any content you're given is fair game for allowing you to teach whatever you really want to teach. So in your teaching plan, your teaching philosophy, you have to ask yourself, what is the best thing I can give? What skills could I possibly give these students? What values could I actually sell to them and see if they'll take it? Because that's permanent. That's something that they'll always have long after they've forgotten the content you taught in that course. So the aim is not the content. The aim is what's going to remain. Yeah. Oh, I love, I love that you shared that, how, especially how it not just shows up in the classroom, but how it integrates, how it connects to your teaching philosophy and the work that you're trying to do. Cause you're right. They are going to remember that. Like I know for a fact, my students think about that curiosity piece a lot. And I tell them, I say, yeah, we're going to learn some stuff in this class, but the, the biggest thing I need you to do is I need you to be curious about why you're making these decisions. Um, and then your, your breakdown of culture, it, I, I teach, graduate and undergraduate students, but primarily undergraduate students. And the disconnect between culture and some of the challenges they run into is infinite. Like we did an activity in my org change class where they're all working on issues across campus they wanna change. And I told them, go observe wherever you would see this, this culture, this mini culture. So some of them are looking at campus safety and I'm like, well, let's, let's go to the campus safety service office. And they're like, oh, I don't know where it is. And I'm like, Okay, but you're saying all of the campus safety, you know, we need to talk about it. It's not safe. You're saying all these things and you don't even know where their like physical location is. And it's not COVID because y'all are juniors in some instances, you know? And so them just like this disconnect between recognizing like the components of what culture is and then getting them to. So even where the physical location of, of the, the campus safety building factors into how you see safety, like it's, it's a beautiful building that looks just like every other building and it's in the heart of campus. And I'm like, you had to walk by the building to get to class, you know? And it's so, so it's like those meaningful teaching activities and, and questions, you know, are things that, that are gonna sit with them for years. And like, I, I trust and have faith that in five years, they all gonna come back and say, yep, you were right about, you know, this concept, not this, the something they memorized from the book, but how, you know, we furthered that conversation around culture. I fully agree with you. I think learning should be an experience. So as professors, we're creating an experience. So what you do by making them go to that building and see that person is you make them experience something. So we're not talking theory anymore. Go talk to real people out there. And it might totally change their perspective. So if we see it from that angle, then we start thinking of, better and cooler ways of producing an experience. And thankfully in universities, we're so free to do whatever we want. We could take them to visit a company 
we could go for a walk, a stroll down the neighborhood and show them something. And I actually tell this to our gardeners and our cleaners and our caterers. I tell them when I want to give an example of work well done, you know, what does excellence look like? I should be in a position to just tell them, just follow me. Let's all get out of class. Just come and look at that hedge. What would it take to make a person trim a hedge so perfectly? Like what would motivate a person to do something so well and be so good at it? And it's a perfect example. So what I tell them is we're all teachers here. This is a learning institution. You create the learning environment just as much as I do in class. I do it theoretically. You give me the practical examples that I can come out and, and showcase to everyone. So if we think of education as also helping people experience what we're talking about, then it's just left to our imagination. What sort of activity could I come up with, which is probably just in the neighborhood or in our list of contacts and alumni that I could take these students to and then experience something different? Yeah, I love that getting getting the getting out of the content and getting out of the classroom. I, I really, yeah, that's a what a wonderful thing. Um, you you hit on something earlier, and I feel like Dan and I, but our ears perked up and our eyebrows perked up. You talked about your work, your research around the psychology of meaningful work, and so you know my next question is is going to center on. I know you you talked a little bit about how when you took the admin job, you had to put that a little off to the side. But we, I know, and I'm going to speak for Dan because we've been doing this for a while, but I know we would love to hear a little bit more about your research on, on workplace, like uh, where is workplace psychology? Yes, it's organizational behavior, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. also known as organizational psychology. So we look at anything psychological in the workplace, what turns people on, what turns them off, what leads to burnout, conflict, what kinds of meaning are people deriving from the work that they're doing. So I went into organizational behavior because I wanted to study leadership. I wanted to understand what it is that leaders were doing that gave them so much power to influence people and make them follow them. Like, what is it that they were doing? And when I started studying leaders, I got more fascinated with what was happening to the followers. Why were they actually getting influenced? What is it about them that what needs were being met by these leaders. And as I tried to unpack what was motivating them, I went deeper and deeper into motivation until I found what I consider the highest level of motivation, which is meaning. So yes, you can pay me money. You can offer me status, promotion. But when you give me meaning, a sense of purpose, you can't give me anything better than that. And even when you travel along the path of meaning, the highest level you can get to is to find deep existential meaning, which is to find your calling. This is what I was born to do. Everything about me points in this direction. This is why I'm talented in such and such a thing. This is why I had such and such an experience. It was all preparing me for my mission, which is blah. So that's your calling. And so I went into the research of how people find their callings. That's what I studied. And for me, it wasn't just theoretical. I was trying to help people to find their colleagues because now that they know I've read so much about it, they'll come and tell me, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I just feel I'm a little off and I don't know why. Could you help me find my colleague? So I have these conversations all the time. 
And I guess I'm most attracted to people who can't find their calling, who can't seem to find meaning. So I go into prisons, for instance, and these are people who, if you ask, you know, do you like your life right now? They'll say no. What about your future life when you come out? And they'll still paint a dark story because people will always label me as an ex-inmate and they'll never give me a break. So it's all bleak from start to finish. And then I jump in there. I help them create a vision worth living for and then to create meaning right here where they are in prison. So I show them, if you were an amazing person, then people out there would respect you even if you're a formerly incarcerated individual. In fact, if they ask you, why are you so amazing? And you tell them it's because I went to prison, they'll say, wait a minute, that you can't have gone to prison. And you explain, actually, it's because I went to prison that I became this amazing. Then I show them, so how would you become that amazing? How would you be this very patient, very kind, very hardworking person? And I say, you can practice that in prison because it's, life is tough. Your patience is tested all the time. So if you made it a goal, like this week, I'm not going to whine, I'm not going to complain, no matter what happens, you become so resilient. And if you decide I'm going to give part of my lunch to this new inmate who's being bullied, what a huge sacrifice. That's generosity. It's like me dropping $100 to someone at the street corner instead of the usual $1. Because for you, a meal is everything. So once you start practicing these acts in prison, then you become a superman, a superwoman, an amazing individual. When you go out there and people see you for what you are, they'll just admire you. And you won't have to hide the fact that you are in prison. You can actually re reveal it as the explanation of why you became that good. And so I'm attracted to demographics that find it hard to get meaning. And I jump in there. And this all started in the States, by the way. I'm just fascinated by this idea specifically about the meaning as the biggest component of, of motivation. I'm, I, I uh, spent my sabbatical with the Center for Creative Leadership back in, back in 2018, and so much of the work that, that they do in their training and then using the imagery and the, the decks of cards and, and images and whatnot with their, their Visual Explorer series and, and what have you is, is connected to this whole philosophy of meaning making, which is so connected to the deep sense of and the i guess the activity of reflection in leadership development and and understanding yourself which if you understand yourself and you can make meaning of your experiences and your environment and your organization and you find that meaningful of course you're going to be more motivated at your job with yourself with your colleagues i mean we were i was just facilitating an activity in my introduction to leadership class last week we were talking about about value systems um, between organizations and individuals and we said well you know how would one of the questions that was in this great activity we were we were i was using um one of the discussion or debriefing questions was well if you're if you have a clash between your values and the organization's values how is that going to affect your ability to motivate others to to mentor others and 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 worry about or even have any motivation to like help individuals in your organization like excel and move up in the organization or work towards certain projects and it, it's just i hadn't thought about it in the way that you that you described it, it and that's it's beautiful it's so true, Dan, because people tend to think of it as something that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. It's just a thought in your head. So Existential, it yeah. Important. yeah. It's, you know, not objective. 
but it actually has a repercussion on how you feel and how you act. So you have to address these things. And I remember when I was interviewing people and they started talking about their lives, sometimes they break down when they're just thinking of the moment when they finally found meaning and how miserable they were right up to that moment when the scales fell off their eyes and they said, I see it. This is what I've been missing. And so I tell people, don't wait for it to happen. Push on towards it. See if you can accelerate that journey and find meaning sooner. And don't just leave it to chance. Don't let other people impose their meaning on you. Take ownership and start that journey now. How amazing. I mean, it, it, it reminds me of this phrase, how you practice is how you play. And so you're telling them, you know, like the things that you do every day, all those little moments, you know, built into this big moment of who you are, as well as the other thing that I love about all of this is we talk about leadership in our classroom. And on this podcast, we talk to a lot of people who are out in the community or in just different spaces doing work and affecting change. And so it's great to hear that you're not just giving this knowledge to your MBA students, you're out there working with people in prisons um, or experiencing incarceration and trying to help them come out and be better people than when they went in. And it's like, those are the things that are gonna stay with your students as much as the content, as much as those learning experiences, because it's like, even if you can take that knowledge and you can do good work with it, there's nothing that's stopping them from taking that knowledge and doing good work somewhere else. Um, I also, your, your, uh, wise and like your discussions remind me of, uh, Richard Leidner's work here, um, work on purpose. And he's got this card deck and a book that go along with it. And so in my calm leadership class, not this semester, but when we were in person before COVID, I used to have them go through the calling card deck as well as the leadership challenge values deck in the same day. And I'm like, all right, quick, choose your five. Yep, choose your five. All right, let's start making these connections. Is this true? Where have you seen this? Do you have stories? Talk about this with your family and friends because they see these things um, naturally, even though you haven't gone through this idea of labeling it. And so I love that you shared kind of how you're connecting values to motivation, to meaning making and all these concepts that almost seem disparate sometimes. You're connecting them and then encouraging them, giving it to them so, so in a way that they can put it in practice in their everyday life. Um, it takes leadership kind of out of the clouds and moves it to, to boots on the ground, which I think is, is such a great thing. I agree, Lauren. In fact, part of teaching leadership is to actually give a good example. So when they see that you're trying to apply the very same concepts that you're talking to them about out there, then you become more credible as a teacher, it's real. It's not um, something theoretical that's kind of distanced from, from you. So they're always looking for that authenticity and conviction. And what really makes them pay attention is when they feel this is real. This isn't some make-believe theoretical class. This, this guy really means what he's saying. And we know that because he'll then go and do uh, X, Y, Z. I remember being invited as a guest uh, lecturer to a class on social entrepreneurship. And then they said, we're going to give you a gift at the end of the class. So what would you want us to buy you? And they told me what the budget was. And I said, why don't we give it to the orphanage right next to the university? It's called Kwetu Home of Peace. And they said, what? I said, yeah, why don't, instead of giving me the gift, why don't you give it as a gift from the class to these orphans? And then they said, oh, if that's the way you're going to do it, 
then we'll match you, you know, for every amount that you give, you know, the, if it's the entire gift, we'll match it. And so what we did is after class, we actually shortened the class. And I said, I, I just won't show up there and give this gift on my own. Would you all care to walk down the street with me and we'll go and hand it over to the kids. And so we ended the class that way. They, they joined me and we went. And I said, this is a gift from my students and myself. And, you know, that was so much more meaningful than just talking about social entrepreneurship and uh, making a difference. So here they were actually making a difference and we were doing it together. I love that story, especially, I mean, again, reiterating the whole like living out and, and, and doing these things in practice right now and not having to wait till you have a position or a title. Like if you have this opportunity, you can take advantage of those moments as they come. Um, so we got a lot of, we asked you a lot of great questions. You shared so much, so many great stories and meaningful information like that. Um, meaning be, meaning is the biggest component of motiv motivation is going to sit with me for a while. Um, is there anything else that maybe we didn't ask you that you'd like to share with us? I think you pretty much covered all the bases. And what I would invite my fellow colleagues if there are academics listening to this is, if you get a chance to do some admin work, take it. Don't just say, let someone else do it. You know, just at least do like, you know, the way people said I did a tour of duty in Afghanistan or a tour of duty in Iraq. So be that soldier. And uh, <laughs> at the end of that particular tour, people will tell you, thank you for your service. I always, when I see someone in uniform, I love walking up to them and say, saying thank you for your service because I mean it from the bottom of my heart. So I would hope that we academics would do that to our fellow academics when they step down from these admin positions, we'll tell them, thank you for your service. But the flip side of that is who's gonna serve next? So each of us has to be ready to do that. And if we all did our turn, we did our tour of duty, then we'd have these wonderful universities where at least someone's minding the house and making sure the kids can play. And then the rest <laughs> of us will play. And then after a while, we'll switch around and you become daddy and mommy and then the rest of us will play. So that's the way I see it. So I encourage everyone to do their tour of duty. That's, I mean, that's going to resonate with, with me too. Uh, I'm currently in my last year of deployment as department chair um, uh, after a four-year tour and... Uh... <laughs> That's going to stick with me for sure. Vincent, thank you so much for, for joining us today. This has been just a beautiful dialogue. We're so grateful for your time and, and your leadership. Definitely best of luck to you as you continue your journey in your vice chancellor designate role and, and as a leadership educator. It was, it was definitely a joy to have you on. Thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. Remember, you can download all our episodes on all available podcast platforms. And when you go, please make sure you rate us five stars, as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. That's right, Laura. And we also invite you to interact with us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod. That's L-E-A-D-E-D-U-C-A-T-O-R-P-O-D. And on LinkedIn by searching for the Leadership Educator Podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn by name. And on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership, 
within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And a wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies now at the University of South Carolina. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our listeners. During the season, you will hear episodes featuring International Leadership Association members working globally to drive leadership education. Visit ilaglobalnetwork.org slash podcast for more information and to join the association. And finally, this podcast would not be possible without our chief partner, the Association of Leadership Educators. Please check out the ALE and all it has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you will listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts. (music) 